Good morning, and welcome to Ask the Expert, a daily series from 8.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. to help small businesses. Ask any questions in the comments or using hashtag QBATE, so that's hashtag QBATE on Twitter. If you need any more advice, join the official Intuit QuickBooks SMB community group on Facebook. Accountants and business experts are on hand to help 24-7. During the live session, we'll be running a poll, so please do engage with it, and I'll share the results with you at the end. I'm Luke Bath. I'm one of the partners at the accountancy firm Alliots. Alliots is a medium-sized accountancy firm, and we have offices in both central London and Guildford. So we're a full-service firm, apart from insolvency. Um, there's approximately 100 members of staff, 13 partners, and we've all been working from home since the 23rd of March. Currently got no plans to open up our offices, um, at least for a couple of months. Um, we're all set up with Office 365, remote servers, etc. So we've been relatively unaffected by the shift to working from home permanently. Um, what makes us special for a firm of our size is around 40 years ago, Alliots was one of the founding members of an international alliance that used to be called Alliot Group, which has recently been rebranded to Alliots Global Alliance, which is a network of over 180 independent lawyers and accountancy firms in over 75 countries. So because of that, what it means is a lot of our clients have an international element to their business or are international in nature. So, for example, they might trade overseas, they have branches in different countries, or they trade in multiple currencies in different locations, or they're part of a multinational group. My particular specialism is myself, they're outsourcing corporate finance. So outsourcing for Alliance, that means where we essentially run your finance department to a greater or lesser extent. So that works, well, I find that works particularly well for young, growing businesses. It can work for established businesses too. But generally, where it's cost-effective to not hire a full in-house team of accountants or bookkeepers, and it means you get constant access then to a, a qualified accountant, you know, a firm of accountants, and you're constantly having those conversations. And I find that that advice really helps those businesses. So corporate finance is assisting with the purchase and sales of businesses, uh, things like valuations um, for various purposes, um, and share option schemes. So just before we dive into the questions from you guys, I just wanted to quickly discuss research and development tax credits, also called R&D tax credits, which is a very generous relief that's offered by HMRC. So the basic idea behind R&D tax credits or the schemes is to support companies that work on innovative projects. So it's a key government tax incentive to encourage companies to invest in R&D. So there are a number of key conditions you have to meet to qualify for R&D, such as it's important that the R&D project represents a practical advance in science or technology. And so things like advances in theoretical fields don't qualify. The project has may research or develop a new product or process, but doesn't necessarily, or it may improve an existing one. And it must advance, it must be an advance in your overall field and not just your business. So, for example, it can't be something that already exists, but you're just applying it in your business or your sector. If a project, a project also qualifies as an advance if it's developed by another company, but it's not publicly known about. So, if someone else has developed it, but then it was never released for whatever reason or it wasn't available, and you develop a similar product, that may qualify. And there has to be some element of uncertainty about the, the area of your project. So there has to be scientific or technological uncertainty. 
So they're the definitions, really, of what R&D is. But, and that may make it sound like there are very few companies that can take advantage of the scheme. However, it may surprise you to learn, you know, we have many clients that submit R&D claims. And it may surprise you to hear that actually, in the past, we've done claims for companies as varied as fashion businesses, um, business inspection companies. We do a lot of work with space companies, which you would imagine have a lot of technology, um, a lot of technology and science involved. But we've also done one for a chicken food uh, manufacturer. So what I'm trying to say is actually there's, there's quite a varied number of businesses that qualify for R&D. And as you'll see, I've got a stat in a second, but a lot of businesses don't take advantage of it. So within R&D, there are two different types of scheme. There's the SME scheme and the RDEC scheme. I won't go into the RDEC scheme. That's very, it's not commonly used. It's basically based on your size um, and whether you receive public grants for the R&D you're conducting. But everyone else falls into the SME scheme, and the SME scheme is very generous. So under that, companies can either, you can either take a very significant corporation tax saving through an enhancement of the cost you spent on R&D by an additional 130% for tax purposes, which if you've got a small amount of R&D, is, you know, it's an additional 130% of costs that are deducted from your profit before calculating the tax. Or if you're loss-making, uh, which is obviously of particular relevance to companies um, in this COVID period, because I'm aware that obviously lots of companies will have made a loss this year. It's possible if you're loss-making to obtain a cash refund from HMRC of approximately 33% of your total R&D spend, which is very generous. So that's a cash refund in your pocket, if you like, from HMRC on the R&D cost you've spent. Um, so like I was saying, it's, it's, very, it's well worth exploring if you have a project that you think may be eligible. Um, so just to, just to briefly mention why I think that so many companies are missing out on this. So actually, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there is a stat. So the government estimates that 66% of all eligible companies are not making a claim for R&D tax credits, even though they're eligible to. And there are a number of reasons why companies are not claiming, but we've identified some common themes. One of the main reasons, unfortunately, is accountants. Um, either, well, also the, the, the client may not be aware, but mainly the accountant. So the, either the accountant doesn't know about R&D, which unfortunately happens quite often, so they don't know to look out for or suggest a claim, or it might be that the accountant doesn't have enough knowledge about the R&D scheme, or it's quite small, and so they don't want to make a claim or they don't know how to make an accurate claim. The next most common reason is the R&D projects that the company was working on was failed. So maybe you spent some money, a small amount of money, exploring a project, but actually it never came to fruition. Nothing was ever finalized. And it's a myth that that wouldn't make you eligible to claim for R&D. So just because you didn't overcome the uncertainty and develop your product or process, that doesn't mean that you aren't eligible for the additional tax relief. So as long as you meet all the other criteria, then failed innovations or failed projects are still can be claimed for. Finally, a lot of companies don't claim because they think they're too small to be eligible. As I said before, it's called the SME scheme, so small, medium-sized companies, that is. So you know, there is no project that is too small. So if anyone has any questions in respect of R&D, please get in touch. I'd be happy to assist. I would avoid maybe putting any R&D questions in the, in the chat just because it's very difficult to look at based on a, a one-line question. But absolutely send me an email. I think my contact details are on 
on they're certainly on alliance.com if they're not on um this this quick box um webinar if you like but i'd be totally happy to assist and basically it should just be reviewed on a case-by-case basis so please just just let me know if you have any questions okay so i think we're ready now to move on to some of the questions from those of you who are watching um so if i just have a look here so the first question i've got here is from caitlin from instagram direct message so as a self-employed person, do you know how I should budget for my tax? Yeah, so Caitlin, what, what I see clients often doing when they're self-employed is, I don't know if you've come across, um, I mean, it's just in general anyway, but I don't know if you've come across these challenger banks, so people like Monzo, Revolut, that type of thing, and Starling, bank accounts like that, but it applies anyway, but they have, often have features where you can kind of deduct um, a portion of the revenue you're receiving and putting it into like a separate account that you save away then for your tax. And what what is generally a good estimate is, I don't know how, you know, what level of turnover you have, but essentially it depends what I'm trying to work out. What I'm trying to say there is what level of tax you're paying at what rate. So if you know that you're going to pay a 20% tax rate because of the turnover you have, I think it's a good idea from your revenue to take 20% of that revenue and put it away in a separate separate pot or a separate account or whatever you like. Um, and then that gives you then, you, you know, you probably want to overestimate. It depends what type of person you are, but, you know, you can either overestimate or slightly underestimate, but at least then you have the, the money set aside for the tax when it's due. So hopefully that's helpful. But, I mean, that that's what I'd do if I was self-employed. So I would, I would I mean, I'm, I'm currently an employee of Alliance technically, um, but I would separate it out and keep it to one side, and then obviously have a pot of money that may not be the exact amount to pay. Okay, so I have a second question from Lucas from Facebook Messenger. So Lucas said, I'm doing all the finance for my company myself, which is starting to become a bit frustrating as it's not my area of expertise. Do you think it's a good idea to stack away part of the profit for rainy days? And if so, how many percentage do you think is a good idea to save per month? Yeah, so Lucas, you mentioned there um, that you're doing the finance yourself. What I often see with companies that are just that have just started, they often do all the bookkeeping themselves, but ultimately you didn't become self-employed or run your own business just so you could do the bookkeeping. So when businesses start, I often see them they want to do all the bookkeeping themselves. It's less cost effective, absolutely. But once you get to a certain volume of transactions and sales, it may make sense to explore um, either hiring a part-time bookkeeper. But I would I would definitely say that definitely look at outsourcing the finance function to a firm of accountants. Um, you know, not necessarily myself. This is not again a huge sales pitch, sales pitch, but it, it it does give you other benefits other than so obviously the choices are using a bookkeeper and using a firm of accountants to do the to to do the bookkeeping. Um, and there are obviously massive side benefits to using the accountant versus using a bookkeeper. So I definitely explore that if you, and you know, it can be very cost effective these days because of the technology. So with QuickBooks and, you know, the, the ability to automatically capture receipts on the go and things like that. So definitely worth exploring in terms of stacking away part of the profit for rainy days. Um, it really depends 
what the objectives in the business are. So if you're a growing business, then yes, it may make sense to store, you know, five, ten percent of the profit, reinvest that into marketing. Um, but honestly, it just really depends what the what the your type of business is. If it's an established business, you may just want to you know withdraw everything you can from the business. Um so just got another question here. So I've got a question from Corey from Twitter. So hi Luke. Sorry if I've, I've pronounced your name incorrectly there, Corey. I think I think it's Corey. So hi Luke. We're thinking about doing an R and D claim. How are R and D tax credits calculated? So under the SME scheme, essentially um, the type of costs you can claim are things like staff costs, subcontractor costs. Um, there's basically a whole load of costs that you can you can claim. Essentially, the accountant will go through those, your, you know, your P&L, and with your help, you'll identify which employees were involved in the project, which costs relate to the project, and essentially, you'll come up with a list of costs that are eligible to be claimed. Now, there are the things that can only be claimed a certain percentage. Uh, for example, subcontractors, can't, not 100% of the cost can be claimed, whereas staff costs, 100% of the cost can be claimed. Um, but essentially, you then take that list of costs, you times that by 130% to get to a 230% of the original cost, and then you times that by, I believe it's 14.5%, which is how you work out the cash refund. If you're taking the enhanced loss, obviously, which is like the re- increased deduction against your corporation tax, that's just the 230% uplift, essentially. And that's what goes into the tax competition. But if you're taking the cash refund, I think I believe it's 14.5% of the 230%, which roughly works out to be 33% of the net cost you're incurring. So if you spent £100 on R&D, you'll get £33 back from HMRC. Which, as you can see, is very generous, and I've been encouraging yeah you know, all the clients of mine that are eligible to submit R and D claims because you know, it's a fantastic source of finance. So I've got a question here from Jupiter from Facebook Messenger. So Jupiter said, "Hi, there's been an increase of people starting a small business in recent months." Do you see this continuing to rise? And what do you think this means for the small business landscape? So, yeah, I would say, obviously, a lot of people have started small businesses during lockdown. Um, either people are getting made redundant or, you know, they just, they've used the opportunity of lockdown to reevaluate what they want to do with their life, you know, what they want to do as the job. Um, or people have had extra time to start, you know, kind of side hustles, if you like. Um but I think as the economy recovers, I think you'll see some of those fall away. It's almost kind of a bit of a hobby business, if you like, at the moment, um, is what I'd say. Um, but, you know, I think some of them will continue and some of them will be very successful, which is fantastic for those people. But I don't see that the lockdown and the increase in the number of small businesses over the last six months we're looking at now will will actually continue, I think. I think it'll just people will go back to their jobs. People will start new jobs, and those those jobs will kind of disappear away. Sorry, those small businesses will disappear away. Is what I would anticipate. So hopefully that answers your question. So we've got a question here from Alicia from Facebook Messenger. 
So good morning. I was laid off due to the pandemic and decided to start my own company. I've developed the business idea earlier, but decided two months ago it's time to go for it. What's your advice on projecting cash flow when I've barely generated any income? So, yeah, so this this is a great question, Alicia. So cash flow is very difficult to estimate, but honestly, the business owner is in the best position to guess that. So it depends how complex you want to make your cash flow forecast, Alicia. But essentially, I'd start with, I don't know what the business is, but I'd start with working out what you expect the income to be of the next three months. Just start very simple. Just look at the next three months and work out what income you think you will get of the next three months on a monthly basis. So if it's a product, you can estimate, you know, I know this sounds very straightforward. You take the the sales price of the product, you times it by the number of sales you think you're going to have and just put in a monthly estimate. And I mean, that may be wildly inaccurate, but at least it gives you something to go on. And the thing is, after the first few weeks, you'll have a better idea of what the sales are going to be and you can update. So at least you're going to have something on Excel. So I, I, I would do it on Excel. Um, so essentially just have three columns and at the top you've got your income. You can even do formulas to say, well, it's the product, product sales price times by the number of units you're going to sell. And then below, just try and do a cash estimate of what you're going to spend on all your costs. So. Um, for example, uh, products, what, whatever products you're going to need to buy, rent if you're, if you're thinking of taking a, a premises. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's a shop, for example. Marketing costs. Marketing costs is a big one, but you can definitely um, estimate that quite accurately. I mean, it's just essentially how much you're willing to spend. Um, Cancity costs, any legal costs you have, and you know, if it's, you need any terms and conditions and things like that. Website costs. Um, and I think almost on the cost, you'll have a better idea because obviously you've agreed to those services, so you know what what you're going to pay for those services. Um, but and then essentially with the sales, just project the first three months at first, and see, you know, after the first month, first few weeks, you'll have a better idea of what the income is going to be, and then you can project forward. You can project forward for a longer period, and then I think once you've had maybe six months of trading. Um, if it's, you know, the business is, going, you know, look like it looks like it's going to be a success, um, then I would say start to use um, bookkeeping software like QuickBooks. Um, once you start recording all the information in QuickBooks, you can then start to use tools. So one tool that I like to use is called Fluidly. Um, and essentially what that gives you is it gives you a, a in fact, if you, if you work with us and most accountants actually, they will be able to give you access to a free 90-day forecast that Fluidly does based on your historic data. And what that does is that gives you a cash position over the next 90 days, which you can manually override and all this type of thing. But then you can get into a more complex kind of forecasting methodology. And it doesn't take hours to do. It you know, probably takes you half an hour if you want to have a play with it and see what and you can run different scenarios based on different sales, et cetera. But definitely that's that's worth that's worth looking at. That's what I do after a certain period of time. But initially, just look at the cash. Okay, so I've got a question here from Miley from Twitter. So I was thinking about going freelance as a PR expert in the next couple of months, and I was hoping you can explain what the difference between a limited company and a sole trader is. I'm not sure which would be the best fit for me. So 
mileage. Just just in advance, bit of a disclaimer that I'm not an IR35 expert. So IR35 is what um, IR35 is the thing that the the regulations that effectively affects um, contractors that are billing through a limited company to other companies. So if you're only going to work as one for one PR company, then you'll fall under the IR35 regulations. And there, there are more uh, stringent regulations planned to be brought in in April, but they've been pushed back to April next year. But certainly, if, if you want to, if you are considering that, and you have an accountant, just or you, you know, you want to look it up online, just um, Google IR35 because that's certainly worth looking at. But just in general, in between, in in the difference between a limited company and a sole trader. So a limited company is a separate um, is a separate corporate body. So what that means is essentially all activities are done by the company, not by you. All the services are provided by any services you provide to your clients are provided by the company and not by you, um, which gives you a certain amount of legal protection and separation from you. Um, so obviously it's called a limited company and the limited is limited liability. So that is a massive benefit of using a limited company versus using a um, being a sole trader. So if you trade as a sole trader, it's just you as, you know, you are the person who's trading with your customers. Um, the, the other major difference is the, the way that it's taxed. So obviously, if you're a sole trader, you're taxed personally on whatever income there is, whatever profits there are during the year. Whereas if you're a company, the company is taxed on its profits during the year. It will pay corporation tax um, on its profits. And then after that, you, it, the company can pay dividends to you, and then you will be taxed personally on the dividends. So there are, there are a number of things to think about. but yeah, the taxes are very different because personally, with a sole trader, you just do your tax return. You know, it's you as an individual, effectively trading. But the limited company comes with a bit more cost, so you'd have to get an accountant probably to do your a set of accounts, corporation tax return, um, because you know the calculations aren't aren't straightforward. Um, but then they're the two major differences. There are a lot of other differences, of course. Um, but with, you know, without any further detail, it's difficult to say. Ho- hopefully that helps. But if not, just give me give me um, a call, send me an email. I'll come back to you. So I've got another question um, for here from Leroy from Twitter, um, direct message. So I'm self-employed and in my thirties. How much how much percentage of my income should I put towards my pension each month? Any advice would be appreciated. So, yeah, so Leroy, I'm, I'm not really qualified to give pension advice, but just personally, what I'd say is, you know, I think there's a rule, um, I forget what the rule is, but there's a certain rule that you should put a percent, I think it's something like double your age, what is it, double, half your age, I think that might be, it might be that you put half your age in and as a percentage in your pension. But certainly, I mean, as you probably know, the more you put into your the more that you put into your pension earlier, the less you're going to have to put in in the future, assuming that, you know, there are, as expected, there are, there are small gains each year. Um, so certainly, I mean, it's a good idea to put in as much as you want, as much as you can. But obviously, bear in mind in the current circumstances, you know, as you say you're self-employed. I don't know what your business is, but obviously just thinking about COVID, the situation's probably going to go on, I think. For another couple of years, I think, when certainly the economy is going to be di- disrupted for 
the next five years at least. Um, so you want to put in as much as possible, but don't put too much in because obviously, as, as you, I'm sure you know, you can't access that money until you retire. So, you know, you think of it as money you've just, it's not money you've saved, if you like, it's money that you've put away and can't access. But certainly it's a good idea to put as much in as possible. So we've got a question here from Eduardo from Instagram DM. So, hey, as a small business, what can I do to make sure I have a good credit score? Well, that is difficult, Eduardo. <laughs> um, having a good credit score is a bit of a black box, to be honest, because it's kind of determined by rate, well, the credit scoring agencies and obviously they're what they use to determine whether someone has a good or versus a bad credit score. Um, is not always made public, but there are some things you can do. So things like um, avoiding things like CCJs, so counter-court judgments, um, paying all your suppliers on time, not getting into any legal disputes with any suppliers. Um, often, I, I don't know for um, a small business, actually, but certainly as an individual, um, things like taking on small amounts of credit and showing that you can repay that credit, um, that certainly works from an individual view, I would imagine it's the same for small businesses. Um, but yeah, sorry, Eduardo, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. But it's really just doing things that, you know, paying things properly, paying things on time, um, you know, not creating any legal proceedings from lack of payment of debts, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, sorry, that that answer is not terribly useful, but it's just. Don't get any, into any disputes. Don't get into any legal arguments. If you take credit, make sure you repay it on time. Make sure credit cards are paid on time. It's it's that type of thing. So I just got a question here from Jasper from Twitter, direct message. So good morning, Luke. Our business dealing with online education is experiencing very high growth, I can imagine. And there are only two of us. Do you have advice on how we can best set ourselves up for success as our business continues to grow? So, yeah, and I'm not sure really what you do in online education, but assuming, say, it's a platform, oh, maybe actually, maybe you could be a tutor in business, but um, essentially you want to outsource as much of the administration as you can. So I don't know if you've seen so like things like, um, if you haven't, I know you say there are only two of us, but if there are, you have to take on extra employees, you can outsource HR. Obviously, legal, you go to lawyers, accounting, you can outsource all your bookkeeping. Um, uh, just trying to think of the, the other things. So, you know, things like taking phone calls, you can outsource that. Um, you just want to kind of get rid of as much of the admin as possible so that you can focus on the core business, particularly if you don't want to take on any further um, employees. So I think that's um, the last question we have time for. So. We've actually got the poll results back now. So we asked you, have you completed an R&D tax credit claim before? 40% of you said yes, which is very high, actually. I was surprised. I mean, that's a really encouraging number. I thought it'd be much lower than that. That's great. 60% uh, answered no, of course. Um, but yeah, I think that's really encouraging. I thought the, the results would be much lower. But anyway, so any questions? Following on from any of the things I've answered today, anything I talked about before about R&D, but anything accounting related, then please get in touch with the QuickBooks support team on Facebook or contact me. 
at luke.bath at aliots.com. That's A-L-L-I-O-T-T-S. So coming up on Ask the Expert tomorrow is Andrew Bosch. He's the founder and non-exec director of Frank, one of the UK's most successful and established creative PR agencies, and he's responsible for some of the nation's most famous campaigns. Tune in tomorrow and get advice from the PR expert, and he's also the official spokesperson for Lord Sugar since 2001. A reminder that if you need more advice, join the official Intuit QuickBooks SMB community on Facebook. Accountants and business experts are on hand to help you 24-7. I'm Luke Bath. Thank you for tuning in today and have a fantastic day.